91.1 and 91.3. This is KISU Pocatello and Idaho Falls, your ear to the world. KISU City Club is presented by the Idaho Humanities Council, enhancing the quality of life in Idaho by broadening public awareness, appreciation, and understanding of literature, history, philosophy, and other humanities disciplines. More details are on the web at idahohumanities.org. This is KISU Pocatello. Due to time concerns, we start tonight's City Club Forum about 10 minutes early. You can hear the entire City Club Forum by visiting the City Club archives at ifcityclub.com archive. Seven years ago, when we launched the City Club, we brought under this roof two iconic figures in Idaho political history, Senator Jim McClure and Governor Cecil Andrus. And our goal was to promote civil dialogue by bringing two renowned figures to engage in a very civilized discussion of some of the most important issues of our time. Today, we're very happy to be able to do that again by bringing two Senate leaders, two very distinguished members of the Idaho State Senate, and they're uh, well known to all of you uh, who have followed Idaho politics in recent years. It would be a pleasure for me to stand here and recite their many accomplishments, their achievements, their successes over the years, but that would detract from the time available for their remarks on the challenges and opportunities facing Idaho, and then, of course, to take your questions. And as always, we would encourage you to write down the questions, and Kelly will collect them. But let me very quickly introduce our speakers today. Our representative from this area is well-known, Senator Bart Davis, who represents Senate District 33, uh, who has served in the Idaho State Senate since 1998, uh, he was born in South Dakota, has lived here his entire adult life and spent many of his uh, earlier years here as well. He's a graduate of Brigham Young University and the University of Idaho School of Law, a very distinguished member of the bar. In addition to serving as the majority leader of the Senate, he serves on, on the state Senate Affairs Committee, among many other duties. Uh, he says that he enjoys participating in the Rotary Club here and enjoys golf. I'm wondering if that's an overstatement. Is it possible to enjoy golf? Joining us today from Ketchum as the Senate representative of District 25 is Senate Minority Leader Michelle Stennett, 26, excuse me, 26. And, and she has served in the Senate since 2010. She, too, uh, serves on the Senate State Affairs Committee. Uh, she enjoys life in the Wood River Valley, including skiing and hunting and biking and hiking. And it's a pleasure to be able to bring both of them here today to join us at this table. Please welcome Senator Davis and Senator Stennett uh, to our podium here today. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll ask each of them uh, to take about 15 minutes in order to discuss some of the challenges and opportunities uh, facing Idaho today and the great pleasure that they have of uh, running uh, the show in the State Senate and how they work together. Because at a time like this, when Americans from coast to coast have expressed concerns about the lack of civility, about the lack of cooperation between the parties, and the excessive partisanship, we're very pleased to have two people 
who enjoy one another's company, who work together very, very well, at least as of this moment. Let me say that we are going to uh, begin with the Senate Majority Leader, who I should note for the record is to my far left, just in case you wonder, Senator Davis. Initially, I wanted to thank the second congressional candidates for making this time available uh, to Senator Stennett and me. Uh, I understand that our uh, title assignment is Legislative Leadership in Idaho Challenges and Opportunities. And frankly, Senator Stennett and I have not compared notes uh, prior to now. Let me first acknowledge my own failures in uh, uh, following some of what follows. President Dwight Eisenhower said, you don't lead by hitting people over the head. That's assault, not leadership. In today's political world, politics by ambush or assault is common. In Washington, D.C., congressional debates are often held to empty chambers and to cameras. As an outsider, it appears as governance by dueling press conferences. The folks talk at each other instead of talking with each other. In my 12 years as majority leader, I've seen that model pop up occasionally in Idaho. But on balance, I believe Idaho's legislative leaders, regardless of their political affi affiliation, are committed to a better model. Now, I put on each of your table a list of 20 lessons that I am learning in public service, and I hope you enjoy those. As far, uh, so far in Senate leadership, I've served with 10 different Republican and 11 different Democratic senators. Each person's leadership style was different, but each had influence. Thank you very much. Occasionally, others ask, Bart, you are the majority leader. Why don't you just lead? What I hear is, Bart, I want a different result. You're the majority leader. If you lead, they will follow. During each term, the makeup and the personality of our caucus and leadership teams change. But my biggest mistake as majority leader occurs when I get ahead of my caucus politically, or I try to channel them to a solution, my solution. President Kennedy said, leadership and learning are indispensable to each other. In my opinion, you cannot learn from your caucus if you do not listen to your caucus. On each significant decision, leadership needs to understand the heart and the collective will of their caucus. You make a trade-off as a member of leadership. You're not a free agent. You're allowed to have your hand at the ship's rudder, which allows you to influence the direction. But the prevailing political winds of your caucus must be respected too. I believe that leadership allows the process to work. Leadership does not work the process. As a result, sometimes a member of leadership must concentrate or consecrate their vote 
to the will of its caucus and then defend that position publicly. Let me give you an example of making sure your caucus gives buy-in. This past session, a politically difficult public decision had to be made. Our good pro tem, Brent Hill, determined that both the majority and minority leaders needed to give their buy-in. Meetings were held, frank and honest inquiries were made, and the minority leader, Senator Stennett, had hard but fair questions. She wanted to ensure parity of treatment. And then she added, I need to discuss this with my caucus. Michelle understood that she can make many decisions on her own, and she does. But others require leadership by learning the heart and mind of those she was asked to serve. You can only influence, in my opinion, if you listen and understand. She respected the collective will of her caucus. <clears throat> when I was a boy, at the Davis family home evening, my mother asked us, Bard, actually she probably didn't say that, Bard, <laughs> but that's what I heard, Bard, what would you rather have, power or influence? That struck me, and as a boy, power seemed like the right answer. I don't think that's what mother was driving at. As a new majority leader, I whipped the vote on one bill. I believed I was a vote short. The legislation was important to me, and I was afraid that my first leadership bill would fail on the Senate floor. As majority leader, I got that vote. And to this day, I am embarrassed that I did it that way. I have apologized to that senator, and I apologize to you. In my opinion, that is not the proper way to lead. I thought a lot about how to sway votes over the years. I've decided that for me, influence is a better fit. But how do I gain influence? Well, how do I gain influence with my wife? My children, I can't whip the decision. Machia, remember Machiavelli's inquiry in the Prince, is it better to be loved or feared by the people? He replied that if you couldn't have both, choose fear. I could not disagree more. Jefferson's Ninth Commandment states, take things always by their smooth handle. In my opinion, politics is a struggle. It's a struggle where individuals or groups seek to secure their interests by seeking to influence those in authority. And may I suggest that the principles learned at the church house apply at the state house when it comes to gaining influence. Twice each session, the majority and minority leadership host a pizza party for our graduating Senate pages. Those these bright high school seniors are allowed to ask any question on their mind. And they ask tough and fair questions. A commonly asked question goes something like this. How do you decide to vote? Do you follow your party, your constituents, or your own opinions? 
when they are in conflict? Frankly, I think it's a better question than any answer I have heard. But I believe that Idaho's citizens are entitled to a legislative process that creates an environment to allow for the honest and not muscled collective will to be expressed. I believe that legislators and the public gain influence by granting to others what I value, the freedom to think, to decide, and to speak for myself. But I'm afraid of two trends that I see in general public conversation today. My first concern is the elevation of argumentum ad hominem. This is the attack the person, not the issue, fallacy, or approach to problem solving. For example, Senator First says, it looks like it's going to rain. Second, Senator Second says, yeah, but you're fat. <laughs> okay, okay, I admit it. I am a little robust. But does that mean it is not going to rain? Another example, Senator First says, our country is in too much debt and can't afford Medicaid expansion. Senator Second says, yeah, you want poor people to be without health care and die. Therefore, I guess Senator First is bad, Medicaid expansion is good. Senator First says, Medicaid expansion is not not only helps those most in need, but will actually save real taxpayers millions. Senator Second says, yeah, you support Obamacare. Well, you get the idea. Unfortunately, this is a significant part of conversation in today's public square. Not the competition of ideas, not an analytical, respectful, or detailed give and take, rather catcalling. In my opinion, each of you could easily hypothecate another's possible ad hominem attack on Judge Candy Dale and her recent decision on same-sex marriage this week. Respectfully, I disagree with her decision. I realize that many in this room do applaud it. Respectfully, Professor Adler, I disagree with some of your editorial today but not all of it. I find your reminder of the judiciary's fiduciary duty to protect the minority from the will of the majority to be essential. Friends, Judge Dale is a good and decent woman and a fine judge. Professor Adler is a devoted civil libertarian and scholar who seeks to share his voice in the public square. Instead, when you read the newspaper blog postings, the public conversation quickly turns to Coliseum spitting. My second concern is the marginalization of crowding off of the stage of religious values. It seems to me that in some circles, authentic conversation must be limited to public reason. That is, public policy debates limited to the academic discourse 
or secular ethics, devoid of religious voice or traditional values. I fear that religion is, as a leader in my church said, becoming marginalized to the point of censorship or condemnation, he continued. A companion technique for pushing religious values off the public square is to dismiss them on the ground that they are irrational or that they reflect impermissible animus or hatred. Friends, I don't, I believe it because, this is Bart speaking, I believe it because I feel it. Perhaps I'm not justified in that feeling, but I would be dishonest if I didn't acknowledge it. Because I hesitated to even suggest it here today tells me that self-censorship will quiet the honest conversation that needs to occur in order to get the best collective will for our state. Now that same church leader added, we are all losers from the atmosphere of anger and contention. In the circumstance of contemplating religious rights and civil rights, all parties need to learn to live together in a community of goodwill, patience, and understanding. So in conclusion, I want you to know as your state senator, I pledge to pick up my game, to be more civil in my public discourse, to listen better to all of you, and to resolve our disagreements in the dignified and open way that I believe you deserve. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator. We appreciate the views of the majority leader with the exception of those disagreements with the moderator. <laughs> and now it's our pleasure to be able to uh, hear some remarks from the Senate Minority Leader from Ketchum, District 26. Please, thank, Senator Stennett. Thank you very much, and thank you. That was wonderful. appreciate it. I always enjoy working with the majority leader here, and as you can see, we have a good relationship. And um, I had a little different tact. First of all, I want to thank everybody for inviting me here. It's a wonderful opportunity that I don't get very often. Um, I pass through here quite frequently, but I don't get a chance to speak to you and see you, so thank you for this, and thank you, Mr. Adler, for the opportunity. Um, I have um, a little different tact um, from Senator Davis in that um, I'm going to explain a little bit from my leadership style briefly, but also to, to show you examples of how this works and how it probably should work more frequently and what we managed to do this last session by being collaborative. And um, as always, um, it's wonderful to sit with um, Senator Davis because you may be surprised, but he is also a mentor to me. I am pretty new in this position, and he has quite a bit of experience. And we, um, we agree completely that we will agree uh, to disagree, and that part of the process is that everybody, everybody in this room and everybody in the legislature are a voice for somebody. And we cannot, we have to make sure that that voice is heard. That's what our jobs are, is to make sure that regardless of the minority, the number, that voice needs to be heard too. And because of that, what people don't understand is you hear about the disagreement of maybe 10% of what we do in the legislature. 
There is 90% of appropriations and good bill processes and policy making and good hashing out in committees and on our floors that are completely collaborative. We work hard, we duke out the details, we come to good policy making. What you hear about is about the 10% we may disagree. It can be philosophically, it can be religiously, it can be a single issue. Those are the divisive issues that you probably hear about most. They make great press, but they aren't the large portion of what we do together. And in that vein, I think we need to always understand, and what I'm so grateful about being able to work in the Idaho Senate, is that we haven't devolved like we see around us. Um, particularly in DC. We do have our issues party-wise. We'll probably be not in agreement on some of those forever. But as uh, Senator Davis said, you debate the issue, you do not debate the person. And because of his leadership as the majority leader, that does not happen on the, on the Senate floor. We'll, be, we'll debate it behind the scenes. It may happen in committee, there'll be rhetoric, but it is not tolerated on the floor of the Senate. And it is always about issue and not party. And that is because of how we choose to lead. For me, my style, and as, as uh, Senator Davis mentioned, I'm a team builder. And I only have seven members, so I gotta be a team builder. <laughs> There's not a lot of choice. You cannot do anything with a co-sponsorship by the Republicans, but that's good policy making. That is essential good governing. It's something we all should be doing regardless of what the numbers are. You talk to each other, everybody comes to this consensus, everybody, uh, gives up a little bit, everybody gets a little bit, usually somewhere in the center is the right answer. And so regardless of our numbers, though I'd like a little more levity, and we'll continue to work at it, so that we have a little more balance in the legislature, it's not gonna change our style, at least as far as I'm concerned. Because of that team playing, and because we have so few members, every member in my caucus gets equal time. I am not the spokesperson. It is the person who knows the most about that issue who is in that committee that speaks for our group because they know the most about it. And whether that's in front of the press or a debate on the floor, you'll notice that the, the majority minority leaders don't always stand up first to debate an issue. It is our teams that do. They're doing the work. Whoever is the best to speak to that issue is the one that should be our voice for that. In that vein, I'm gonna hit you with a, little, a few um, I hate to do a bunch of statistics because it makes your eyes glaze over. But when we walked into this legislature, uh, this legislative session, there were a lot of pretty poor statistics you've heard about that made a lot of press. And in that vein, and the reason why I'm mentioning them, I want to show you how collaborative work, even though we have very differing ideas, um, I think for myself, I can say I'm a moderate. I actually come from a Republican family, and, um, and um, have, I know a lot about it, and they remain that way and tell me about where I have failed the family. Um, but I also have a lot of ideas from my own experiences as an adult of where I philosophically am. And so for me, it could be a moderate Republican, moderate, de moderate Democrat. For me, it's a fairness issue regardless. Where is the balance? Where is that voice? And I think because we live in a fearful world where everything is geared by fear and lack of, lack of control, that people get very myopic about how they perceive politics. When you're fearful, everything's black and white. And all of life and all of good policymaking is the gray matter in between. And so when you get too extreme, you lose sight of that. And we have to constantly remind ourselves. So in that vein, when we went into the legislative session, we were told that education spending was the second lowest in the nation, that Idaho is 50th in per capita income, 
with the highest percentage of minimum wage workers, that we rank 49th in the nation for the number of physicians per capita, and that 25% of those doctors are over the age of 60, heading into retirement. 86% are over the age of 40, and it takes around 11 years to educate new doctors. We pay our judges and magistrates the 46th lowest in the nation, and Idaho has some of the harshest prison sentences and policies um, for penalties for parole. Idaho has the sixth highest suicide rate in the nation, 49th higher than the national average, and more than 90% of those have a diagnosable mental disorder. In this mix, our servicemen and women are coming home with PTSD and brain injuries um, to families, mostly in our rural areas, who don't have community-based services to help them. Our wonderful VA hospital in Boise has no outreach program. In transportation infrastructure, our local highways and bridges are costing us $262 million a year that we are not able to manage and maintaining them. And that is a public safety problem. Again, I'm doing this only to illustrate what we heard about as we enter into this legend. It is a gargantuan thing to look at, um, especially, it, I mean, of course, statistics can be rendered any way you want to, but still, you have to take it seriously about what we can do and what we can do better. We're, analyze where we are and where we're underperforming and the progress that the legislature can make this session and the work that we would have ahead of us understanding that we only have a few months to make some progress with it and only limited resources. Um, some state policies um, have not made us prosper and we have to recognize that. Choices were made in flush times and in difficult times. And I believe that um, it's not that we don't have enough resources, but it's where we've placed them and where we choose to invest in our futures. So with that, we thought about how we could do things differently. First of all, we heard about the Idaho Education Task Force made 20 recommendations on how to improve and invest in Idaho's education system. I commend the governor at the beginning for approving those recommendations and setting out a five-year plan, and he called it K to career. So he's thinking a lot out of the box. My personal preference would be pre-K to career, but that's for a future discussion. Um, but the task force understood that it was going to take $350 million for the whole plan, and how was the Oh, how is the legislature going to wrap its brain around that amount of money and how are we going to think ahead and do it in components that were um, possible and feasible and still improve our education system? I commend um, the efforts of our education committees on both parties, on both sides. We um, gave the um, education system twice as much as what the governor um, recommended, 5.1%. Uh, and um, that it was, uh, it was a $66.2 million um, from the general fund. It uh, is based on 179 unit um, support units for enrollment. It went through everything from uh, teacher pay to um, discretionary funds or operational funds for, we really hit all bases a little bit and, and upped the game. We have to understand that the levels we brought it to this year only brought us back to the 2008 and 2009 levels. And we have 14,000 more students across the state. But understanding, that was a huge first step. And also we have to understand that 94 of our 115 school districts had to, have, had to pass supplemental levies. 15 years ago, only 41 of them did. 
So we still have a lot of work to go, but we have to understand that these are steps, and we made a giant step. In addition, because you are um, in the territory of um, Idaho State University, the legislature approved a 6.2% uh, increase in state support for all colleges and universities. And the University of Idaho. And the University of Idaho. Well, I'm going through the universities one by one. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, anyway, it included to increase additional dollars for the Center for Advanced Energy Studies, Higher Education Research Council, and a Higher Education Stabilization Fund. And so of particular interest to you for the universities, there's a 2% increase in salary funds for dedicated staff and faculty of the universities and their satellite institutions. These are things that we had had to put on hold because of what our economy was, that we're finally stepping up. If we're truly going to talk about career, uh, K through career, and we're, if we're truly going to talk about an educated workforce, our colleges have to be a large component of that and have to be competitive in the process. And also, too, funding is being provided for Bioskills Laboratory in Meridian which will complement ISU's anatomy and physiology laboratory and their public works project. And I'll speak to you a little later why that's important when we talk about our dearth of, of medical education within this state. We're too small of a state to have a medical uh, university or um, teaching school, so we've tried to be very creative how we could pull things out from the, the Northwest and in our programs to make that possible to bring residencies and, and doctors who want to stay within, within our um, state. The, um, the Department of Commerce, on an economic side, presented legislation that provides a new performance-based economic development tool that provides a tax credit up to 30% for up to 15 years on corporate income tax sales, tax, and payroll taxes. In essence, through um, what had been generated through some of our colleagues in the legislature, the um, Director Sayre with the Department of Commerce took it to a whole different level and said, we need to give incentives to bring, uh, to bring industry into our state. We have, a, we have a very competitive corporate tax structure. How can we do this understanding that we have to create a skilled workforce that they, instead of them having to bring their workforce in them, so work on that component, but what, what makes them want to come and choose our state as opposed to some other part of the country? This was a bill that we all um, agreed upon. It was um, passed pretty unanimously, I believe. Um, where it encourages industry to come in with the understanding that if they don't, if they have to show performance. They have to show that they have long-term um, employment positions in place before they ever get their tax break back. And in essence, they contribute their taxes to the system, and at the point they start showing that they've made a difference in that community by, by what they've done in their employment and they intend to stay, is when they get their tax break back. So you've, you've, they, they pay into it on the front end, and they get the benefit to show that, they're tr they're, that they mean what they say and that they're not going to just disappear um, later, that they're going to be part of the fabric of the community, which I think is a wonderful approach. It's modeled after several other states. This one was modeled after the one in Utah. It's, it's starting to be very successful, and I'm pleased that we were able to do something that is a beginning look at what we can do economically to encourage economic growth. Um, as you may know, we, there was a lot of talk about the cigarette tax and where that could be reapplied. And um, there were many things that, of course, we have to pay our Garvey funds for, for the, the roads and highways. But beyond what it normally went to, um, there was an additional $5 million distributed annu annually for aquifer stabilization efforts. Now, all of us who, especially in southern Idaho and eastern Idaho, know that water issues are huge. 
And given what uh, we've been through with our fire seasons and our lack of water and our droughts, depending on where you are in the, in, in the state, uh, my area did not come up to 100%, but I think you guys are more than you needed this year, which is a first after several years. Still, we are all interdependent on those water sources, and our aquifer recharge is a huge component to that. And so we, we, we're working hard to do water issues differently, but also to understand that we need to replenish our resources as best as we can given the condition of the climate. So, and the second part of that was to put monies away for state highway account to pay for highway, and, uh, highway maintenance, which addresses what I told you is that quarter of a billion dollars a year that we're not looking at, that is just gonna be the legacy we hand to our kids if we don't start tackling that, and that it's unsafe. The, um, the Idaho's successful drug, drug court pro programs are some of the best in the nation, and I don't know if you recognize that, but we are the leading um, example of how to do drug court well, and they have a lot of conferences here because we're some of the best at it. Um, in addition to that, um, the crim uh, Idaho Criminal Justice System Task Force studied best practices nationwide, and the Idaho legislature addressed criminal justice reform which was facilitated by the important work of the Criminal Justice Reinvestment Interim Committee and the Justice Reinvestment Working Group in collaboration with the Council of State Governments. We increased the salaries of our judges and magistrates and funded a new database. The current one is simply exhausted, archaic, and unfixable. We had no choice, we had to invest in it. And if you were a person that was within the, ju the judicial system, you wouldn't want anything making mistakes and breaking down and taking your records to places it shouldn't be and not recording things properly. That is a huge thing you want to have working right, working correctly, and something that is distributable nationwide and within the state with the most accurate information possible. So we stepped up to the plate for that. Um, we also took criminal justice measures. Um, uh, we. Uh, as you know, the governor said we had to take over the um, prison outside of Boise because of the contractor. So we allocated appropriations um, for state ownership, which happens at the end of June. And that's something where we went from the private, pretty much privatized to the state ownership. But it was the right thing to do. We're under two um, court orders to follow and meet explicit guidelines, including proper staffing and training. So taking over the facility was something we were required to do, and it was the smart move and what we should have done. It's a huge turnaround because we found out about this at the beginning of the year, and we have to have trained staff and facilities in place and the operations up and running um, by June 30th. So hopefully we'll get this right and do it well, but I think it's gonna be a work in progress. So um, I, I think in, I'm trying to make you understand that we saw what was ahead of us, and um, we, that we, we believe in state government that um, we're, we're tasked to be fiscally responsible. You give us the, um, the, the power to utilize your taxpayer dollars, hopefully to the best use and the best ability that we can. We will disagree where those go to sometimes, and we probably would put more in one silo than another, but generally we agree on the needs, and we do the best we can between the two parties and within um, within both houses, and they are very different animals. Um, as, but it's just, uh, we have different cultures in different places, but we're all still the same people trying to do the best work we can for our, our individual constituents, constituencies. So um, ahead of us, what we chose not to do, which would, would have addressed our health and, 
mental illness and all of those that I mentioned are probably going to be on the, um, certainly on the, the debates for this next session. We did not address Medicaid expansion or redesign. That is a $90 million hit to the state by not taking action. These are taxpayer dollars. And unfortunately, we are providing those taxpayer dollars to other states who did take Medicaid and we're not reaping the benefit. So really, that is a disservice to, to our constituencies, to, our, to Idahoans. And so I'm hoping that with that, we can address the 100,000 hardworking Idahoans that are, um, are not being covered. And the 100% of mental illness I mentioned earlier that could be covered, that we don't have any, we, we have so little um, um, funds in, in addressing that component. As, as we know, that is just a huge issue that we, we should really tackle and look square in the face. And so when we're considering these things for this next session, we should take those into consideration. And um, how would we want to further address our, um, um, you know, bring in those uh, ideas that we, d we chose not to, infrastructure, uh, healthcare. These are very, very divisive issues. We will have to talk to, about them. I think we will address them in this next session, but we did make great progress. So I guess in, 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 as a final note, um, we have to keep in mind that savings and tax cuts uh, can be wise moves in a healthy economy, but if you are slow for recovery from a recession of deep cuts and most basic needs, what budget item would be the most important to you? And I'm saying this to you because as a team player and a leader, we have to do what we hear from you. And so often, so many um, people in Idaho have chosen not to play in politics. And that's just not a fair choice. You need to tell us what's important to you, and we need to always be listening to you and have these kinds of forums and going around to our districts and talking to our local governments and our senior citizens and do what we can our best so that we hear clearly what it is your taxpayer dollars should be doing and do it to the best of our ability given the various personalities and individuals that we have to deal with at our level in the legislature. So if we put money aside for emergencies, how much of that um, should, how much should that be, and when does it become an emergency? So we have to keep talking about those thresholds. I know putting savings accounts aside are important, but when are you, are, where, where are you being so um, austere you cease to exist? And those are those fine lines and those conversations that we keep having to have every time we look at a budget every year. So as your representative in the State House, you've entrusted us to have civil, earnest, disclosure and discourse. You expect us to make a plan, you expect us to have a vision, and hopefully create opportunities. And I'm honored to serve this state. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks to both of you. We have a broad range of questions here, including some non-controversial questions on guns, religion, and same-sex marriage. <laughs> so we're glad you're here to take up those non- I didn't have that in my You didn't have those in there, so we're gonna turn to, we're gonna turn to those. Uh, let's start with a, with a general uh, question about uh, why it is that the legislature decided to pass the ag-gag bill, knowing that it's likely to generate lawsuits and uh, perhaps result in the waste of taxpayer money when that law is declared uh, void by the courts. Senator Davis, we'll start with you first, please. 
it, it's a bill that certainly has a wonderful title to it. Uh, uh, I think when you look at that bill, uh, and instead of can you all hear? Excuse me. You, can you hear? Uh, you better speak a little closer to the mic. Thanks. Thank you, Senator. Or do we dare try the other one? Is this better? Can you hear me now? Uh, no, nobody wants to. Uh, at least I hope we don't want to stifle uh, free speech. When, when you look at the items that are restricted in the bill. It really is a consolidation of what's unlawful elsewhere under Title 18. There is, however, I think it's the third one. Uh, it's the third or the fourth one. It's not the last one. It's the one right before the last one that I think is the area where there is some controversy. Um, this is a debate that I think goes on in people's mind of, of uh, consequentialism versus deontology, and that is. Uh, uh, do you have a free speech right uh, uh, at all times, including on somebody's private business, inside somebody's private business? Do you have the right to come onto somebody's uh, private business and enter unlawfully or deceitfully, uh, or to acquire property unlawfully or in some uh, other deceitful fashion, and then expect that, it, that you are entitled to the protection of law? What that bill is trying to do is to say, listen, folks, uh, there, are, there are bad actors on both sides of this issue. Um, uh, just as I have voted uh, and supported uh, legislation to make it a felony uh, for animal cruelty, I think it is also appropriate to say to those groups that are willing to conduct themselves in an unlawful fashion that uh, uh, when they enter onto a property or enter em employment or acquire uh, 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 property or information uh, uh, deceitfully, that it should also be unlawful. Now, uh, what will the courts do with it? Well, some courts, frankly, have held it uh, upheld it. Idaho does have a, a current judicial challenge on it, and I do think, in all honesty, that there is one portion of the bill that may go beyond what uh, a court will allow, and that's the one that I have referenced earlier. I apologize, can't remember it exactly off the top of my head, but in the event that that happens, then that will compel the legislature to revisit at least that portion of the legislation. If I were to read to you the things in that bill, I think each of you would say, yeah, that shouldn't be lawful, that shouldn't be lawful. There's one, however, that I think the reasonable folks in this room would have an honest disagreement over. Thank you. Senator Stennett? Well, this was a, dis a divisive issue even amongst my colleagues in my district. Um, my north part of the district, which is Blaine County, is very animal loving and the south part is where all the dairies are that this whole situation came from and no amount of dialogue was going to come them bring them to the same page and so um, I ended up being sort of ground zero for that um, particular debate um, my perspective when I look at something that is so <coughs> polarizing within my district um, I do bring my own philosophies and ideas but I try to bring in um, what all of the diversity of my constituency is looking for. And part of the thing that I always look at is, is it constitutionally viable? Um, is it well-crafted as a piece of legislation, which surprisingly as much vetting as it goes through, we have really poorly crafted legislation sometimes still in the end. And so it's up to us to vet that thoroughly. 
And because we don't want to come back and have to amend it because it went over, was overreaching or whatever. And this bill, I thought, had pieces of it that, as, as it came out to a vote, were unsustainable um, because of those. Aside from the animal rights piece or the animal cruelty, which I'm not diminishing at all, I had a real problem with the business um, message it was sending out. Um, I spoke to processors. Uh, Chibani asked the governor not to sign it, to veto it, because what it says to the uh, milk producing and milk eating and milk loving people of the world is they have something to hide. And what is happening in, on our turf producing this milk that they want to keep quiet. And so whether, uh, the unfortunate part about that is most everybody who are in the industry, in the ag industry, are great um, producers, actors, follow all of the proper protocols, do everything they're supposed to. And by this bill, we've just covered up the small percent of bad actors who give a bad and black eye and a bad name to all the other people working really hard to do the right thing. I just didn't think that was the right way to go about it. And so um, because of a, of a business perspective, if we send out the say that, excuse me, but um, we're not going to reveal what we do, and you can't come in because it's a criminal offense to everybody, and it was only the ag sector, which really didn't criminalize anybody outside of the ag sector, which I thought was an odd part of that whole piece. But uh, above all that is um, the lack of constitutionality because of the going over the top of the First Amendment. And, um, and I read a lot about, I don't know if you know Temple Grandin, but she's sort of the, the guru about uh, grazing practices around the country. And she said, if you make a mystery about it, this, people are going to be suspicious. And so what you want to do is you want to open your farms up, you want to have cameras in every corner, you want to show how good you do your production. Put the mystery out of it. And so I think this just really made people outside of our state uh, not want to buy our product. And that's not a good economic driver for us. And so for those reasons, I had to vote no on it. Good, thank you. So uh, uh, some small difference on a non-controversial issue. Now let's turn to the issue of, of expending taxpayer dollars to defend uh, the same-sex marriage uh, suit here in Idaho after it has been decided by Judge Dale. And how far do you think the state should go to defend this statute? And in addition, why does the state have uh, two different offices uh, defending this suit? The Attorney General's office on the one hand and Governor Otter hiring his own private attorney. Senator Davis first, thank you. Uh, let, let me take the last part of the question uh, first and then I'll return to the other part. Uh, it's my understanding that the named defendants in the cause of action were the uh, governor of the state of Idaho and uh, the Ada County uh, clerk. Uh, that the state of Idaho was not named as a named party. The uh, attorney general sought to intervene the governor chose to, to have his own attorney, uh, Tom Perry, uh, who works for him. Uh, and Tom uh, handled, principally handled the matter before Judge Dale. Uh, that's his prerogative to choose who he wants to have as his attorney. Uh, the attorney general uh, represented the clerk of the court for Ada County, not the state of Idaho in that litigation. And so for that reason, you see both uh, the attorney general and the governor's attorneys uh, on board. Um, 
I, I do hope that as they go forward, that there will be a unified approach instead of a disparate approach. Uh, but uh, that's uh, for those folks to decide. That's, that's not me. Uh, returning to the first part of your question, uh, you may remember uh, last fall we had the Attorney General of the State of Idaho speak to our city club, and he reminded us that he had a responsibility to defend the laws of the State of Idaho, whether he liked them or not, my words, not his, that he had a fiduciary duty to defend the Constitution and the language of the Constitution, whether he liked it or not, again, my words, not his. Um, uh, similarly, we have created, long before I arrived, uh, uh, Senator Hansen, maybe you were there when it was first created, uh, the Constitutional Defense Fund, and that has periodically been funded, and it is used uh, to defend the state of Idaho, not just in Tenth Amendment uh, issues or federalism fights, but also to defend the Constitution of the state of Idaho and that is what is occurring here. Now, I know that there are people in this room who would, uh, will disagree on this, but that is what is occurring. We, we replenish that uh, fund from time to time. We generally have kept it at about a million dollars. We have pulled from it from time to time during the recession, as I recall. I, I may be recalling incorrectly. But we have spent it down, and then if we have not had the money, we've not restored it. But we normally do keep on hand a bucket load of money in an effort to defend the state of Idaho, its constitution, and also against uh, a federal encroachment. Thank you. Well, Senator Davis explained the nuts and bolts of the legality far better than I could even expound on. It is, uh, as far as um, the obligation of the secret or the uh, attorney general, it is his his duty to to defend it. Um, again, whether he agrees with the issue or not, um, that is part of it. I think my my um, getting into the money we put aside for defending the state constitution and the legislation we pass. Um, Oftentimes, we put money into that coffer and then pass legislation we know is going to put us sideways. We're going to have to defend ourselves legally. And I have a problem with that. I just don't think that's fiscally responsible, where you know that, well, politically, this is going to look good, but we are going to end up in court. And um, so to that end, I, have, I think we should be doing things differently. And this is no different. Um, as would be no surprise, um, I philosophically um, uh, think that um, people's rights to fairness on all levels, no matter what kind of um, background or I, I just don't believe in any kind of action disc discrimination on anyone at any level. And so um, it, it's something that I'm, I'm sorry to see that we're fighting. I see a whole tr trend happening around the nation on so many different levels that we are um, kind of in crosshairs with. And uh, we, everybody deserves to have their opinion and their debate. I'm just sorry that we have to take your taxpayer money to fight that debate um, either side when you have, it's, it's out of your hands and it's, it's taking the power away from you. And it's something that we're sitting here sort of um, driving the train, whether that's at the executive level or at the legislative level. And I think we need to do it differently. So um, was I surprised about the um, decision? No. Was I surprised about the reaction? No. Um, but we, that just means we're spending more money um, from our coffers 
to have this philosophical debate um, in, in court. And um, so it'll continue to play out. And um, I'm hopeful that everybody looks at it from a fairness perspective in the end. Thank you. Well, Thank you both. Can I just, I can't stop myself. I'm going to add some more to it. Uh, and there may be Did some you say add the words? Uh -huh. Did you just say? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, that's a fair shot. Uh, <laughs> but there'll be, I'm sure, some sir rebuttal. I guess in my mind, uh, this is Bart as a lawyer uh, speaking. I really do believe in the adversarial system. And when you have states where their attorney general has chosen to not engage, um, courts are not left with a full, honest, and robust record on which to base a decision. The state of Nevada, for instance. Um, the state defended successfully at the trial court level their definition of marriage, but on appeal, both Governor Sandoval and the Attorney General have chosen to abandon the appeal. Um, the state of Oregon, we have seen uh, here in the last several days that their, the, uh, the district court uh, refused to grant standing to a, a third party to defend uh, their definition of marriage. I just don't believe that either side benefits when you do not have a full uh, record and a, an honest competition of ideas in the courtroom. You give your judges the ability to do a better job if lawyers are doing their job. Now, that's, that's my opinion. Now, I know that uh, my, my dear friend uh, and I would, would, de would decide some of these issues differently, and frankly, some of them similarly. Uh, I, I think it's healthy that this occur at the legislative level including a conversation about the Idaho Human Rights Act. But I also believe in the courtroom that, uh, uh, that the issue deserves the dignity of, of, of an honest conversation. And with the state, that means it does it with uh, the resources that it has, which in this case is the Constitutional Defense Fund. Thank you. Now, since you did mention that issue, add the words. Let me just follow up. <laughs> In this morning's paper, Senate Pro Tem Hill was quoted as saying that since the same-sex marriage issue is now, quote, settled, it may mean that the add the words issue won't, quote, be any big deal. So let me ask both of you, what are your plans to facilitate a hearing on add the words in the upcoming session? And uh, very quickly, do you believe that the legislature will now add those words in light of the decision? Uh, Senator Stennett? Well, in light of what Senator Davis just said about the legislature being the first li line of fire for a healthy debate, does that mean we're going to get one in the committees and come to the floor this year? Well, Senator. I'll look forward to your <laughs> Anyway, um, I think that, um, I think he's correct in saying that um, not having that conversation is a disservice to everyone. And so um, we've continuously, meaning us Democrats on both sides, have continuously kept keep bringing bills up that sometimes get a hearing, don't go much further. 
um, oftentimes don't get printed. And so um, the unfortunate part of that, that is not a robust um, uh, dialogue that needs to happen. And um, so I'm looking forward to continuing to bring this issue forward so that we do have um, people, public, represented in our committees and that that debate has a healthy debate and finally gets um, the visibility that it deserves. Uh, I understand that uh, it's something that was not the political desire for this year and we had a lot of demonstrations against that because people feel very strongly on both sides of it. But it, we can't continue to hide. If you've noticed how quickly this kind of issue is run across nationwide in an unprecedented manner, and how um, small communities uh, individually, whether it's Coeur d'Alene or Idaho Falls or, or Ketchum have decided to do it on a local level internally, at some point we're gonna be um, looking pretty ridiculous in the legislature that we haven't addressed it on a state level and everybody else is working on it around us. So at some point I, I'm, I'm really hoping that we will have that proper dialogue. Senator, do you think we'll hold a hearing uh, I'll add the words this session. I've never been uh, troubled by holding a hearing on the issue we've had. We've had several print hearings over the years. We've had uh, uh, other presentations to the committee. We've not had a bill that was printed ever come back for a final hearing, which I think is the question uh, that is, is being asked. Uh, on that particular issue, you, I think you want to introduce and have a hearing on a bill that has a legitimate shot of passage. Now, long before, um, uh, well, years ago, I, I stood on this stage and in answer to a similar question said that my faith teaches me that in the areas of housing and employment that those are issues of human dignity and we're entitled to lawful protection. And frankly, I believed it then and I believe it now. Uh, and uh, that type of a piece of legislation, the words will matter, are, are something that very candidly I have expressed support for before. The challenge is if you add the words that some want to add, it makes it difficult to get it uh, past even a print hearing. And so, uh, in my opinion, if if Idaho is going to engage and do something, I believe prior to any hearing, those who are willing to solve the problem instead of headline the problem need to be willing to work on collaboratively language that can pass. It is a legislature. We compromise to get votes. And if we stand uh, so, uh, so committed and firm and immovable either side, I think you ultimately get run over. But I, I do believe that that's the, that is the pathway to success. And I'm not afraid of, of having that, uh, uh, that uh, conversation, both privately and publicly. Thank you very much. Since you're both committed to the idea of having a public discussion in the legislature, uh, would you entertain the idea of co-sponsoring a bill, the two Senate leaders, uh, to introduce, add the words? Since you're both in favor of uh, the public discussion. I, I'm certainly willing to allow her to co-sponsor my bill, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Now, 
are, uh, we're, we're running out of time quickly, and I know we have a couple of important subjects to address, so I'd like some, some rather quick answers, if you don't mind. Idaho is the only state in the nation that does not allocate some public resources uh, for indigent defense. Should we, should we expect the legislature to offer a few dollars? Oh, we, we, we have to do that. This have is something that we are on the path to doing. We, we took the first step on it this year. If we don't, folks, we have a Sixth Amendment problem, and, and we should get smacked around. And frankly, we will. And so, yes, as a state, we have to do it. So, uh, yes. Senator Stennett, would you co-sponsor legislation with Senator Davis to do that? Absolutely. Thank you. Next question. Here in... We're efficient here at the City Club of Idaho Falls. Uh, you know that we're in an election season, intensely partisan uh, campaign. Many citizens have expressed concern that they don't have adequate understandings of the qualifications of judicial candidates, candidates for judicial posts. Should we not move toward a system in which we have retention similar to the way in which we select our magistrates? Senator Davis? Uh, I, I personally have no problem with going to a retention system all the way down. We ask lawyers to give up their practice, to walk away what has made them successful for 10, 15, 20 years, and a few years later, uh, I have no problem. I, in fact, I would defend uh, the, the election system but, but I do think that we ask them to give up a lot and they risk a lot just a few years later. Uh, I think it's remarkable that they're willing to do it and I think we should find a better election system. It was a good system in the 1960s and it served us well very candidly for a lot of years. But this is 2014 and I think we need to be prepared to reconsider how we elect our judges. And I completely agree, and of course, he understands the judiciary better, better than I do, but um, I, I think that, again, we have not, we don't pay our judges and magistrates, as I mentioned earlier, very much, and it is a labor of love that they leave their practices to do something as a civil service for all of us. And so um, if we can set something in place where they feel like they can have that longevity and that they're honored for having made, stepped up and done that um, in, a, in a system like that, I think that that would be a, a really wonderful um, thank you to them for all their hard work. Thank you. Uh, since, you're, since you're both uh, self-described fiscal conservatives, would you agree that, that the legislature ought to, ought to expand Medicaid in this next session? Senator Stennett? Well, if anybody who's followed anything I've said know that, knows that I'm a complete proponent for it. It's no mystery. Um, I think partly uh, my idea and from the beginning has been even if you don't agree with me the Medicaid expansion and you have a disagreement about whether the government, the federal government would be able to sustain it, if we're paying that kind of money, hemorrhaging that kind of money with no return in the interim and we don't have the, the metal, medical, um, the um, mental illness component covered, and we've dropped those 100,000 people, why can't we at least take the system on while the state steps up and does something transitionally where the state takes it over, but not doing anything in the interim 
just is a lack of service to our, our um, Idahoans. And, um, and, and then it's, uh, it's, as a fiscal conservative, it's just irresponsible, it's fiscally irresponsible to spend that kind of money that we don't see any gain from. So I think in the short term, um, I, think it's, I think right out of the gates we should take on Medicaid expansion as part of the program. And if we tru truthfully don't want to be beholden to the federal government, take that transitional time to do something as a state where we move those programs into state programs. But not doing anything is not the answer. Thank you. Senator Davis, is this yet another opportunity for co-sponsorship of a bill? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> uh, and I know we're, that we're time crunched. Uh, the Affordable Care Act provides that if you're within 100 and 300 percent of poverty, uh, that uh, you're entitled under uh, the, uh, whether it's a state-based or federal exchange, uh, to a subsidy. What, what the Affordable Care Act also said is that you're, if you're below 100% of poverty, which is less than minimum wage by a long ways, then you don't get any subsidy. But the way the Affordable Care Act did it was it just said states, you have to pay for it. Now, we'll give you some money for a period of time, but if you don't extend Medicaid uh, expansion for those at 100% or less, then what we'll do is we won't give you any of your Medicaid money. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court said that's a gun to the head of the states, and, this, and that's wrong. They just said that violates uh, constitutional principles and struck it down. So now what we have is we have this legacy problem at 100% of poverty and less, or less, and the state of Idaho has said so far, listen, folks, even if it makes sense to the state of Idaho, the federal government can't afford it. If we want to talk about being fiscally conservative, if you're at $18 trillion in debt, you know, there's got to be some grown-ups that say, we, we've got a problem solved. Now, yeah, it makes sense, honestly, to you as property taxpayers for us to do Medicaid expansion. It really does. You can pencil out the numbers and you can defend it. But, folks, we're, we're in trouble at a national level. Now, do, do I think Idaho can or should do something? E yes, but not that. Um, there are other opportunities that the, the governor and, and our state have been working with, a previous secretary, Sebelius, on uh, that held some promise. And we look forward to seeing what her su successor is willing to do. Uh, but as written, Idaho is not likely to uh, uh, take that step. Thank you. We, we are beyond our time limit, so let me ask one final question. You both alluded to the excessive rhetoric in our campaign politics here in Idaho. What would each of you hope to, to do to tamp down that rhetoric so it does not verge into the area of ad hominem attacks or even hatred? Uh, Senator Davis. Well, I, th I hope to just continue to do what I'm doing. Anytime I believe that the floor of the Idaho State Senate uh, starts to get askew or we've got a senator, regardless of party, that's about to go that way, we immediately take the floor at ease and we have a cooling off period. We walk the floors, sometimes we go into the office and have a little conversation. Almost always, without exception, before we even get to our office, they're saying I went too far, didn't I?
Uh, yeah, they did. I've held two press conferences as majority leader. Two. One was my first year when I thought that's what I was supposed to do. Uh, and it just didn't fit me. It wasn't a good fit. And then the second time was after we had a senator who had to resign for some inappropriate conduct while he was serving uh, in the state senate. And in that instance, we felt like the citizens of Idaho deserved the right to have questions asked and answered. I, I'm not a fan of press conferences, but then I'm the majority leader. I got 28 out of 35. I'm not the minority leader. But, you know, I get to have my voice heard every day on the floor of the Senate. Um, but I, I guess what I'm in answer to your question is we try to encourage civility uh, on the floor of the Senate in our public conversation. And I, if there's more that I could be or should be doing, you guys know my email. It's bartdavis at me.com. I'm an Apple guy. Bartdavis at me.com. And most of you guys know my email address because we're pen pals. <laughs> and you give me the business, and I promise, I promise you that I'll be humble when you chew me out, okay? Thank you. Senator Stennett? Um, again, I think that's important that we set the example, and that's what Senator Davis and I try to do as leaders uh, in the Senate. Uh, we don't tolerate it amongst our caucus members. Um, we generally will have a discussion if I'll call him on the floor and say, we need to jerk a chain, he'll do the same to, my, to me and my members, um, that we just stick, keep that protocol, keep it to the issues, not to the person. And, if it, and we're very, very specific and tight about our protocols. Um, you have to be ever respectful um, when you're doing business. And for me, respectability, I don't care whether it's inside or outside of that state house, is the, is the supreme way you handle yourself. And it's by example that we should be doing it. Our expectations should set that example. But for me also on the campaign trail, I don't talk about my opponent. It's about what I can bring to you that because I'm their senator, I have to represent everybody. It is not a party issue. I am representing Republicans, Independents, Democrats, Libertarians, Constitutionalists, and I better be doing a good job for all of them to the best of my ability, even though I may be the standing Democrat. And so for that, um, it, it's all about what you bring that gives people choices. I am not gonna devolve myself into negative infighting and I won't set that example for my colleagues. So on both sides, I think it's how we handle ourselves internally and externally. Senators, let me say on behalf of our audience and the City Club how much we've enjoyed having both of you here to share your views. We look forward to co-sponsorship of legislation. And in addition to that, uh, there are so many important issues on which we would love to hear your views that we intend to invite you both to return and hope you'll accept our invitation. Thanks again so much for joining us here at City Club. Visit ifcityclub.com for audio of all past City Club forums. The time is nearing 8 o'clock. This is KISU Pocatello, Idaho Falls, Rexburg. The Idaho Falls City Club on KISU is supported by the Idaho Humanities Council, promoting good citizenship through civil discourse, civic engagement, and reflection on the public good. More information is online at idahohumanities.org.